Good morning again, and happy Easter. Uh, Several years ago, uh, back when I was in college, uh, on Easter Sunday, we were at lunch at my my grandparents' house, my my Mimi and my Papa is what we called them, and uh, that particular day, my my Papa, uh, who, let's just be honest, he uh, went to church mostly because my grandma made him, (coughs) but... uh, was uh, unhappy with uh, church that morning. And so after lunch with a, a belly full of ham and scalloped potatoes and you know, deviled eggs and all the stuff you normally eat on, on Easter, uh, while well, he was kicked back in his recliner with his belt buckle undone between puffs on his Marlboro light, he proceeded to let us know what he thought about their preacher that morning. And I can't repeat it because we're in church and there are children here. But it was a profanity-laced tirade about their preacher because he did not mention the resurrection of Jesus enough for my grandpa. I mean, it was one of the most hilariously ironic things you could ever hear uh, about somebody's displeasure with with a pastor. So here's my promise to you. Uh, You may dislike some of my sermon this morning. That's fine. You may have a problem with something in church this morning. That's fine. But... I will not let you have a complaint that we don't talk about the resurrection enough today. Uh, We are uh, wrapping up our series today. I have a question. And uh, this this series, we've been answering some difficult questions in life today. Not questions that are controversial or political in nature, but questions that are just difficult to ask and difficult to answer because they can serve as obstacles or stumbling blocks to someone coming to faith. And so over the past five weeks, we've been, been looking at some of these different questions. And today, with it being Easter, we're going to answer the obvious question, did the resurrection really happen? Now, this is a different question than what we've looked at over the past five weeks. Those questions have been a little more theological or philosophical in nature, but this question is historical. Basically, I want to know, did this happen or not? Did Jesus really walk out of the tomb or not? You see, it's more than just a question about a historical event. The resurrection of Jesus is the basis of the largest and most impactful movement of people in the history of the world. For for 2,000 years now, billions of people have followed Christ and have made a difference in the world on the basis, on the premise, that Jesus died on the cross, was buried in a tomb, but walked out of that tomb and is still alive today. So it really boils down to this. If the resurrection really happened, then it's the single most important moment in the history of the world. But if it didn't, if it didn't actually happen, then everything about us, everything about our faith is meaningless. In fact, the Apostle Paul writes about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He said this, he said, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. And skip to verse 17, he says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people the most to be pitied. In other words, what he is simply saying there is if the resurrection didn't happen, nothing about our faith matters. 
Nothing about what we do in Jesus' name matters. Uh, any, any worldview that we have is misguided or short-sighted. And it basically means that anything that I do that's good stops when I die. Anything I do for other people, it stops when, when I die or maybe when they die. Even if it, if it trickles down a couple of generations, ultimately it's going to end because when we die, that's it. We're gone. And, and nothing else matters anymore. That's what Paul is saying there. Uh, Leo Tolstoy, a 19th century Russian writer, he faced the similar questions in his mind. He struggled with questions a lot. He was, he was a believer, but struggled with questions. And one of them was this. He said, what will come of what I am doing today or tomorrow? What will come of my whole life? Why should I live? Why wish for anything or do anything? And then he clarified his question this way. He said, it can be expressed thus, is there any meaning in my life that the inevitable death awaiting me does not destroy? See, in other words, He's saying, everything that, that I'm thinking, all these things that I could potentially be when I die, are they just done, or do they go on? That's kind of where he's struggling, and, and he's asking the question that a lot of people either don't understand or just don't think about, and that is this, life without the hope the resurrection brings is meaningless, and that's what the critics of Christianity want to claim is that everything about our faith, everything about what we do, is meaningless because it's based on an event that didn't actually happen. It's either a lie or a myth or a legend. That's kind of what we'll come back on if, if you're a critic. It's not about Jesus. In fact, most people are going to agree on, on who Jesus was, at least to an extent. You ask most historians or scholars or academics or just people in general, both in the church and out, and there's almost a, a universal consensus that Jesus of Nazareth was a very real person who was a very good teacher, a very good moral leader who led people to the point that he became a threat to the Jewish and Roman authorities and he was put to death on a cross because of it. But that's where the consensus stops. He was dead and he was put in a tomb and that's where the consensus stops because most people outside the church are going to believe that once he was dead, Jesus, like, you know, everybody else, stays dead. And that's kind of where it all ends. And critics will claim that as Christians, we should supply a burden of proof to show that Jesus really did walk out of the tomb. Yet, critics don't want to give any burden of proof that he didn't. They want us to prove that he did, but not the other way around. So we can offer investigative uh, evidence and show that maybe he did, but a lot of mainstream critics aren't going to give us any that he didn't. They'll simply bail out of any investigation on the grounds that, well, miracles are impossible. And it would have been a miracle for Jesus to, to walk out of the tomb alive after he was dead. Now, if you, you were here last week, we talked about this. If you weren't here, I would encourage you, look up our website and, and listen to last week's study, because we answered the question, does science contradict the Bible? And part of that was we talked about miracles. And one of the miracles, or what, what we looked at with miracles is, is we as humans struggle to understand miracles because our minds are locked into the natural world. We are stuck on what we can see and touch and feel and, and, and what can appeal to our senses. That's our version, our definition of logical or, or rational or reasonable. But we said last week, if you believe that God exists, then you have to unplug what you know to be logical. If you believe God is a creator and creates everything out of nothing, then your version and your definition of logic and reason it goes away because God's not subject to that. But I get it. 
If somebody's a skeptic, if somebody's a critic, and, and they don't understand, and they don't want to believe that the resurrection happens, and they come to me and ask, okay, yeah, it's on me to, to point the evidence in their direction, to get them to, to go towards the conclusion that I believe. So what I want to do, just with our time today, is, is look at a, a couple of areas. One area is inside the Bible, and another area is outside the Bible, and see what they say about the resurrection of Jesus. See, first, Scripture. Scripture, especially if you look through the New Testament, it's just page after page about the resurrection. You start in Acts and go forward after the Gospels are over, and the apostles just testify to the resurrection over and over and over. The early church was convinced that it was a real event, that it actually happened. And I love how the apostles, starting with the twelve, and and Peter, who just a couple of days before was running scared from the Jewish authorities, are now so emboldened that they stand up and they profess the resurrection to everybody. In Acts chapter 2, we read how the church starts. And the church starts with the apostles gathered in an upper room and the Holy Spirit shows up and and the church launches and it, it spills over out of that upper room and it spills actually onto the southern steps of the Jewish temple. That's where a lot of uh, scholars think that, that Acts 2 takes place. And Peter gives the very first sermon in the history of the church. And right at the, the peak of his sermon, what you might call his dominant thought, Acts chapter 2, Peter says this. He says, this man, Jesus, was handed over to you. He's talking right to the Jewish leaders. Was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, I love this, you, with the help of wicked men, putting to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it is impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Again, the early church was convinced that Jesus resurrected, and they based everything they said and did on the resurrection. Whether it's their their sermons, you can read through the rest of Acts and all the sermons, or, or read through Paul's letters or the rest of the epistles of the New Testament, and they are all based and centered on the resurrection of Jesus. One of the things I like, though, is, is you look at how it changed people. The apostles, again, they were terrified. Now, all of a sudden, they're bold, and they're staring down the Jewish authorities. Acts 4, Peter and John stare down the Sanhedrin, and the Sanhedrin says, you can't preach this, and they're like, yeah, come on, come get us. And I love that, because these are guys that a few weeks earlier were running scared, and now they're like, hey, we're here. And they pray to God, God, give us boldness and courage to continue preaching in your name. I also love how you look at the, the, some of the opponents of Jesus, how they became believers. Uh, James, Jesus' brother, the Gospels tell us his brothers thought that he was crazy, thought he was nuts, that his, that his brothers, and even Mary, thought he was nuts when his ministry started. And by Acts 15, James is the leader of the church in Jerusalem. Or how about the most famous example, Paul, originally Saul, a a Pharisee on track for the Sanhedrin. He's murdering Christians, massacring churches, massacring anybody who who professes Jesus' name. And on the way to Damascus, on the way to do some more of this, Jesus meets him in the road. The resurrected Jesus meets him in the road and rocks his world. And Paul, his name changes to Paul, becomes one of the most unstoppable forces for Jesus the world has ever seen. And if you read through the rest of Acts, the last half of the book of Acts, Paul's sermons, you read through his epistles, every sermon is centered on the resurrection of Jesus. They were convinced of it. And this didn't happen like over the generations. Myth, legend, those take generations to happen. No, this happened immediately. 
just within the span of a few years. In fact, I started this, this sermon off by, by reading out of 1 Corinthians 15, but you go to the beginning of that chapter, starting in verse 3, Paul's writing to the, the Corinth uh, church, and he says, For I have delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Now push pause here, because 1 Corinthians is written in the 50s, so about maybe you know, 15 to 20 years after Jesus died on the cross. But Paul visited Corinth several years before that. And go back even further, some, some scholars think he actually received this when he says what I received, that he received this from God within just a handful of years of the crucifixion. So he says it here, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve, then to, uh, he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all of the apostles. In other words, Paul's saying, hey, don't take my word for it. Go ask Peter, go ask James, go ask the other 12, go ask these 500 guys, most of whom are still alive. In other words, you don't have to take my word for it. You, you know anybody who just tells you stuff that's outlandish and they don't have anybody to verify their claims? I used to work with a guy when I was in college. Uh, this guy, he, he was a, a, a big dude. He he's claimed he played college football and he was built like he might have played college football. I don't know. But he played at Oklahoma State with Barry Sanders and he was Barry's favorite personal blockers, what he always told us. You know, Barry won the Heisman Trophy, set a record for rushing yards in one season, and, and my friend Mitch was personally responsible for making sure Barry set that record. And he had all sorts of other claims that, that he could do. He, he, he golfed in the, in the high 60s, and, and uh, I mean, he was a professional sports better on top of all that, and he had all these claims. There's one problem. Nobody could verify his claims, so we had to take him at his word. And let's just say that none of us really totally bought what Mitch was, was trying to sell us that day. But that's not what Paul does. Paul's like, hey, don't believe me. Don't believe my claims. Look at these other guys. Go look at what John says. Go look at what Peter says. Go look. He says there's other people you can ask, and they're still alive today. And you can go ask them right now. And we could go on and on. The New Testament is just chocked full of names of people who are testifying to the resurrection of Jesus. But I know, too, if you're a skeptic, if, if you struggle to believe maybe what the Bible says, then the Bible may not always be the best source to prove itself. So what do we look outside the Bible and see what it says, too? See, whether you look in the Bible or you look at some of the early historians, men like Josephus, who, who was a historian that wrote outside the Bible, people in the first and second centuries, there are some indisputable facts that they claim that have, have maintained their status throughout the centuries. And I want to give you just a few of those to help kind of point you toward a conclusion. Fact number one, Jesus died. Kind of said that earlier. It's a widespread consensus belief that Jesus was a real historical figure who really died on the cross. And let me just say this simply. Without getting into the gory details of everything, Jesus really died on that cross. There's a theory out there that he didn't actually die, that, that he, he kind of fell into a coma. It's called the swoon theory. But that they, they took his body and they put it in the tomb, and while he was in the tomb, he kind of came to and, and walked out of the tomb. But let me just say it clearly. There is no way. He was dead. Medical experts will agree. He was dead. First, he was flogged by Pilate. And it's not just getting whipped. 
I mean, this is getting your body torn apart. Multiple whips on, on one, one swing, glass, bone, metal, just ripping a body apart. And this wasn't just a precursor. I know I grew up thinking, well, flogging was just something that happened before you, you were crucified. No, it was a pretty big punishment all of its own. In fact, 60% of the people who were flogged died as a result of the flogging. Because it just ripped a body apart, and there was so much bleeding involved that, that most experts believe Jesus would have been in hypovolemic shock before he ever even started walking toward Calvary. And then he gets to Calvary, and he gets nailed to the cross, and they drive spikes through his wrists. Uh, the, the Bible says hands, but it's important to know for the Jews, the hand started from like here down. So the wrist was considered part of the hand, but he's nailed. Nails go through his, his radial nerves and just send unbelievable pain through his body. In fact, the crucifixion was so painful, the Romans didn't have a word to describe it. They had to make one up. The word they made up to describe the pain of the cross, we translate to English as excruciating. The word originally was, was defined as out of the cross. So they had to make up a word to describe the pain involved because it was so great. And after Jesus, uh, the, after he died, just to make sure he was dead, they ran a spear up through his side and pierced his lungs and pierced his heart. Guys, he was dead. As my cousin's little girl used to say, he wasn't just dead, he was really dead. <laughs> we used to go to the cemetery and she'd see my grandpa's gravestone. Man, he is really dead. Yeah, Avery, he's really dead. Jesus was not just dead, he was really dead on the cross. And let's say this about the Romans. They were experts at this. Expert executioners. In the recorded history of the Roman Empire, there was not one single person ever to survive a crucifixion. Medical experts, again, they agree there was absolutely zero chance that Jesus was not dead on the cross. And the thing was, the authorities of the day, they didn't dispute that, and most scholars today don't either. So one indisputable fact, Jesus died on the cross. Number two, indisputable fact, Jesus' body has never been found. Now, if he wasn't dead, or if, 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 he, if he was dead and buried and, and the resurrection didn't happen, you'd think there'd be a body somebody could present as evidence, right? One alternative theory to the Gospels is that the women who discovered Jesus' body, the Gospels, all four say that, that a group of women found the empty tomb. I shouldn't say they discovered his body. They discovered the empty tomb. That they went to the wrong tomb. That's one theory. Well, they just went to the wrong tomb. And they, they were confused, and they were, they were grieving, and they went to the wrong tomb, and, and they found one that had never been filled, and that's why it was empty. The, the Jesus' body was buried somewhere else. I don't buy that, because these women had been following Jesus for years. They'd followed him from Galilee, up in the northern part of Israel, all the way down to Jerusalem. That's several, several days' journey. And they'd been following him, again, for a long time. But not only that, they were there when Jesus was buried. There's scripture and non-scripture that confirms this. They were there in a very private burial ceremony. And so it's hard for me to believe that from that night, that would have been Friday night after he was crucified, a day and a half later to Sunday morning, they forgot where they were going. Now you can insert your own joke about women in directions here, but <laughs> I have a hard time believing that they don't know where they're going. The old city of Jerusalem, pretty small. Just a few square blocks in that area. So again, I don't buy that, that his body was never found. But even if they went to the wrong tomb, even if they're over here and they're like, yeah, here's Jesus' tomb, it's empty, 
the Jews could be like, no, it's right over here. See, it's got his name, Jesus, right here. He's buried. I mean, do you want us to move the stone and you can see? He's in there. But that's never happened. Nobody's ever given a trace of the body of Jesus anywhere. Fact number three, Christianity was started in the very same city its Messiah died and was buried. This to me is interesting because when a messianic movement happens and its Messiah dies, usually it just dissolves. Usually it doesn't go on. Maybe somebody will carry it on for a little while longer, but, but it doesn't sustain itself. And this one not only continues, but it starts just literally down the road from where Jesus was crucified and where he was buried. And it, again, it was started by those same disciples who just a few weeks earlier were running scared. Now, you would think that if you were a part of one of these movements and your leader had been executed for revolutionary purposes, that if you were going to continue this movement, you might go somewhere else where you're not real well known. But they don't. They start it right there, right on the steps of the Jewish temple of all places, and they're professing that Jesus is alive. That just seems outrageous. That seems impossible. Again, unless he really was. N.T. Wright, uh, one of my favorite theologians of, of the day, uh, said this, Jewish revolutionaries whose leader had been executed by the authorities and who managed to escape arrest themselves had two options. Number one, give up the revolution. Or number two, find another leader. Claiming the original leader was alive was simply not an option, unless, of course, he really was. And again, I agree there. Jesus' disciples who, who hid in fear, they were hiding behind locked doors after he was crucified, are now so bold that they are professing Jesus' faith right in the heart of Jerusalem. Number four, the apostles all died for their belief. You don't actually find this in the Bible. You flip through the New Testament, you're not going to see where Peter dies, where Paul dies, or, or any of these guys. You, you see a couple of them here and there. But by and large, you don't see the disciples die in the Bible. You've got to look outside the Bible for that. And again, you read the works of 1st and 2nd and 3rd century historians, and you're going to figure this out. That every one of them died for their faith. There was one exception, and it's, it's kind of an asterisk exception, John. He didn't actually die for his faith, but he was in exile and died alone by himself because of his faith. But another alternate theory that critics throw out as opposed to some evidence is that the disciples stole Jesus' body to make it look like he had, he had resurrected. Again, you've got to think through this. These were guys that on the night of the crucifixion and the night before, they were terrified. Even Peter, of all people, who, who launches the church, Peter was uh, standing there while Jesus was arrested at, at the house of Caiaphas and denies even knowing who he was. No, I don't know this guy. I'm not with him. I didn't come from Galilee. With, I never heard of this guy, Jesus. Don't accuse me of being with him. And now they're going to say, well, then he went in the next night and stole Jesus' body. <laughs> not likely. Not likely they snuck past two extremely professional Roman soldiers and stole Jesus' body and then went and hid it somewhere forever, and then, on the basis of a lie, went out and started a revolutionary uh, messianic movement. Not likely. Not going to happen. See, these guys wouldn't have gone to the death if that was the case. You don't, you don't push a lie to the point where you're going to die. I, I don't know how many uh, people have, have uh, eventually succumbed to some kind of torture where they're finally willing to say what you want them to say and willing to admit the truth but I'm willing to bet 
But none of these guys died for something that they knew wasn't true. Now, does it mean you can't die for something you're duped for? Sure. But something you know to be true, it just doesn't happen. Blaise Pascal, a theologian, said, I believe those witnesses who get their throats cut. In other words, if you're willing to die for what it is you're professing, it can't be false. But again, you can make your own conclusions. I just want to show you some evidence, again, both in the Bible and out, to points toward the resurrection. But ultimately, we have to ask this question. What does it all mean? And why does it matter? Why does the resurrection of Jesus matter? Why does it matter that it's really, truly a real historical event? A few reasons. Number one, it means Christianity is not merely a spiritual religion. Now it is, obviously. We've got the Holy Spirit. Uh, our, we, we read about our spirits are going to go to heaven when we die. But it's not simply only spiritual. It's very real, physical, and historical as well. I said this a few weeks ago, uh, you can go to places like Israel and you can actually touch literally some of the same things Jesus touched. You can see some of the same places he was. You can, you can experience some of the same things that he experienced, as well as the other people from the Bible. You can see all of these. See, God's work is, is more than just physical. It's redemptive as well. For the, the whole story of the Bible, the, the whole meta-narrative from Genesis through Revelation is about God's work in restoring and redeeming humanity, and restoring and redeeming his creation. And I love this because we, the church, we're the continuation of what Jesus started. Jesus started it, he hands it off to the apostles, they get it launched with the Holy Spirit in Acts 2, and we're still going strong today, 2,000 years later. Number two, the resurrection means that Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. The disciples thought it was, and so did a bunch of followers, whether they were Jewish, Gentile, whatever. They thought on, on Palm Sunday, when Jesus got on the donkey and he rode down the hill into Jerusalem, that that was his coronation, that he was coming into Jerusalem and that he was going to overthrow the Jewish authorities and drive the Romans out, and he was going to reign from David's throne like so many kings had before and so many kings have since in that, that physical mindset. And obviously the, the Jewish and Roman authorities thought that too. That's why they killed him. But Jesus said as much. He tells Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. What does he mean by that? He means that his kingdom is coming later. And, and there, there's still work to be done. And part of that, as, as followers of Jesus, we understand his kingdom is still to come. It's not here yet. Is that we understand that we have to endure suffering sometimes. We have to endure hardships sometimes. Paul wrote about that. Romans chapter 8. He said, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. I love that verse. One of my favorite verses to read. Because it just reminds me that I can see to the end. I don't have to get stuck in what I'm doing right now. Whether that's suffering or whether that just simply means not living for the world, but instead living for God. See, I have to judge success a little differently than other people do. I judge success in terms of the church and in terms of Christ, not the world. What does that mean? Success in Christ, success for the church is selfless. It, it, it's, it's elevating Christ above us and elevate, or putting ourselves down lower. Taking the attitude that, that John the Baptist took when he said, he must become greater and I must become less. Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. The resurrection also means 
that we have eternal life now. And that's more than simply just hope. Ephesians 1, Paul says, When you have believed in Christ, he identified you as his own by giving you the Holy Spirit, whom he promised long ago. The Spirit is God's guarantee that he will give us the inheritance he promised and that he has purchased us to be his own people. One of the things I love the most about Christianity and about faith in Jesus, this is a faith and a religion of new life. When you're baptized, we say we're baptizing you into new life. You're dying to your old self. That's the symbolism of being put into the water. You're buried with Christ, and then you're raised to new life. Or as the video said earlier, you're raised into new life. (laughs) Jesus resurrected into a new body. I love that to to kind of dispel one of those theories that, that he just went into a coma. He walked out of the tomb without a scratch on his body. He had scars in his wrist, yes, and in his feet, yes, but this was a man who was ripped to shreds, and now a day and a half later, there's no scratches. I got a scar on my knuckle right here from where I hit a piece of glass one year when I was in high school, and I've still got a scar. This is a tiny little nick on my finger, and it's still there. And it was, it was a pretty bright red mark for a long time, and a day and a half later, Jesus walks out with a completely purified new body. And that's what the resurrection promises us, that when Christ returns, our bodies will be resurrected with him, and we will have new bodies. If, if, if you're hobbling around today, that's going to stop. <laughs> if you've got uh, some, some physical ailment, that's going to stop. We're going to be resurrected, and here's the best part. Death will be defeated forever. Amen. So did the resurrection really happen? To me, the evidence says absolutely yes. To me, it points that it absolutely did. Uh, You've probably heard of the movie The Case for Christ. It's in theaters right now. It's it's the story of Lee Strobel, if you don't know it. Lee Strobel was an investigative journalist from Chicago who was an atheist and and decided he was going to set out and use his investigative skills to prove that God did not exist. And so he started this journey. But it backfired on him. Because along the way, he found enough evidence that his opinion totally changed. And not only could he not disprove God, but he found enough evidence to tell him that, yes, God absolutely does exist. He wrote a book that kind of chronicled this journey called The Case for Christ. It came out several years ago. And I love this book because he goes and uses those investigative skills. And he's, he's already a believer when he wrote it. But he goes and interviews experts, and he just grills them like a skeptic would, trying to get them to break or misspeak, and they never do. And I love it. And at the end of the book, he says this, if the evidence points strongly in this direction, meaning toward God, it's only rational and logical to follow it. If all the evidence points to Jesus, if all the evidence points to the resurrection being a real, true, historical event, then friends, Jesus is worth the risk. He's worth the step in, in faith. He's worth following. He's worth putting to the test in your own life. Maybe you're not convinced. Or maybe you are convinced the resurrection did not happen. Let me just say this. If, if that's you, if you're convinced it didn't, I'm going to tell you, you should want to believe that it's true. You should want it to be true. 
And here's why. It means nothing in your life is meaningless. It means everything you do is ultimately for an eternal hope and for an eternal good. And it doesn't stop when your life stops. For me, it's as simple as this. It boils down to one simple statement. Either the resurrection is true or nothing about Christianity is true. There's no between. It's all or none. Either, everything, either the resurrection is true or nothing about Christianity is true. For me, I put my faith in Jesus of Nazareth, that he was the Son of God, that he came, that he threatened the Jewish and Roman authorities enough that they put him on a cross, that he died, he was buried in a tomb, and on the third day, he walked out of that tomb. And he ascended into heaven, and he's still alive in heaven today, hanging out with God, and he's waiting for the moment when God says, go get your church. And that's my faith today. And that's where I land on the question, and the resurrection really happened. Let's pray. Father, we are, are so thankful for your resurrection, for the resurrection of Jesus. God, we're so thankful for everything that that brings, all the hope that that brings. God, for the eternal life that that brings. Lord, we, uh, we, we are thankful to know that death is not the end. But God, it's just simply a turning point for us to step into eternity. God, I pray right now, if anybody here is struggling with this question, Lord, that you would, would soften hearts and speak to hearts. And God, you would, would do what you've done for the last 2,000 years and change lives. So God, we're thankful. We love you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.